If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as prime minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, you're listening to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the magazine's editor. And I'm Sue Wingrove, the deputy editor. Lovely to have you listening to us. This is the second of our two December 2009 podcasts. So coming up, we've got... One of the things you have to do is is ask yourself, why did the the Viking Age begin when it did? That was Robert Ferguson, who's posing a very big question about the Vikings. His range was extraordinary. He, He was a literary colossus, really. And that was Peter Martin, who's talking about Dr. Johnson. This podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history monthly. We'll tell you how to get hold of a copy of the magazine later on. Now, before we go to this month's interviews, let me just tell you what's on our website at the moment. Whether or not you buy the magazine, there's lots of free historical content to enjoy there. If you haven't visited it, please do take a look. There are special features to read, plus our guide to history on the TV, as well as an index to back issues of the magazine, a weekly quiz and a forum for talking history. It's all at www.bbchistorymagazine.com. And don't forget that we have more audio history on our website in the form of our Day Tripper series, where Julian Humphreys delves into the stories of some of Britain's historic towns. Just go to the Visit History section of the website and click on any of the Day Tripper pieces to hear the guides. Here's a clip from the guide to Ironbridge. 
Why was the bridge built here in the first place and why in iron? Well, the problem was that the area's industrial expansion was being hindered by the absence of a bridge across the gorge. The nearest one was about two miles away and although half a dozen ferries regularly crossed the gorge, they weren't particularly reliable. Well, it was obvious that a bridge was needed, but the large numbers of barges and other vessels plying their trade up and down the river meant that whatever was built would need to be single span so as not to impede their progress. And to hear more about that and other places to visit, go to www.bbchistorymagazine.com forward slash visit forward slash Ironbridge. Now then, the Vikings. They've had a very variable reputation over the years, from the traditional view that they were bloodthirsty rape and pillagers, through to the revisionist take that they were more akin to adventure tourists. Clearly, it's a subject that's crying out for a nuanced viewpoint. Robert Ferguson has given us that in his feature in this month's issue of the magazine, where he examines what might have driven the Vikings to launch their vicious seaborne attacks. You've written about the Vikings in the uh, in the current issue of BBC History magazine, and and you're talking specifically in the issue in the feature about uh, what caused the Viking attack. So perhaps we ought to just clarify what we mean about when we say the word Vikings relating to the eighth and ninth century. Yeah, who they were. Hmm. Yeah, <clears throat> basically they, they were Norwegians, Danes, and Swedes, and um, these were. These are real tribal identities. They're not sort of modern uh, uh, constructions. Uh, they were genuine. The people at those times knew who they were. There was a trader named Othide uh, from the north of Norway who turned up at Alfred the Great's court in about 880 and gave his court a sort of lecture about the, um, the geography and the, and the population of these Scandinavian countries. And they were very clear. He was very clear. Norway, actually, his description of Norway is very like the Norway of today. So there were the, the, this was the basic, there were the Scandinavians, there were Norwegians, Danes and Swedes. And then about the middle of the, uh, middle of our period, that's to say uh, about 850, the, the composition, what, what we mean by Vikings probably changes slightly because then you get these huge armies coming over, probably consisting in, in the case of the, the British Isles of, of, of mostly Danes, but with a, with a large number of Norwegians in them. And then even later on uh, uh, in Ireland as well, you get... Um, these armies acting as mercenaries with a lot of local people. You get uh, you get um, Celtic Norse dynasties rising in Ireland and so on. So to begin with, you have these three fairly separate tribal groupings, but as it develops, um, you get much more mixed. You get much more mixed concept mm. of what a Viking army was or who a Viking was. So we've got, the, we've got these three groups in, in, in what's now Scandinavia. What, what else is going on in Europe at the time, at the, the, sort of the, the, the close of the 8th century? Well... Uh, I think you could say in the main that there are three major political powers <clears throat> in Europe and in, in the, but not say the world, but in Europe at that time. <clears throat> Excuse me. You've got Byzantium in the east, which had to survive the breakup of the Roman Empire. You've got the Muslims who had um, seen a great expansion, a territorial expansion in the, the two centuries preceding the outbreak of the Viking Age under the, these, these, these caliphates, which took them eastward as far as Asia Minor. And, and, um, and they occupied the, the Iberian Peninsula and even made inroads into, uh, into south of France. And, um, and the third of the great powers was the Franks, uh, who had established themselves as the, uh, as the dominant tribe among these successor tribes after the fall of the Roman Empire. So by the middle of the 8th century, most of Europe between the Egbert in the east and the Pyrenees in the west was under Merovingian Frankish and, and Christian control. Um, and uh, 
the story, our story really begins in many ways with, with the accession of, of, of Charlemagne as sole ruler of the Franks in 771. And um, he, he, in military terms, he halts the Muslim expansion into Europe. He drives the Arabs back across the Pyrenees. He establishes Frankish dominance in Spain and Gaul. And then from about uh, 782 onwards, which is bringing us right up to the beginning of the Viking period, his chief preoccupation becomes the conversion to Christianity of the tribe on his northeastern border, and that's the Saxons, and that's, as it were, the buffer tribe between his empire and the Danes of the Jutland Peninsula. Okay, so um, it, that's interesting, isn't it? Because when 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 do we officially say the Viking period starts? When, when where do you stand on that? Well, the the the, the insular Viking Age. These things are very subjective. Every mm. country will will have its own idea of when the Viking Age starts. The Norwegians will tend to. Uh, started about 750, but that's just a general kind of ballpark thing of um, to do more with uh, national identity, and and uh, it's not so closely. Uh, we we started with this act of violence uh, against Lindisfarne, the monastery at Lindisfarne, in 793. Mm. Um, and you've got to start somewhere. I think that's probably a fairly uh, reasonable place to start because yeah. violence is such a characteristic of the Viking Age, and this was a particularly violent and uh, and brutal way to begin it. So and, and so, basically, the accession of Charlemagne and his rule in Europe then does tie in quite closely with with the way that we see the start of the Viking period. So, so he was putting pressure on on the on the peoples of northern northern Europe, um, pressuring their their way of life, their society, mm. um, and, and I suppose their their religion specifically. Um, so, so what effect did that have on the Vikings then beyond the beyond their Saxon buffer zone? Well, the the. the if we, I mean, this is a, this is quite a, it's quite a localized area of 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 a very great tension up in the northeast there around this time. Um, Charlemagne really, I think there was something like twenty two campaigns. He really, really set that as the goal of, of his of his, his political and, and 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 cultural goal was to um, was to force the Saxons to abandon their their culture, their their political system, their beliefs, and everything, and make them. Part, Christians and part of the Frankish Empire. The Danish king at the time uh, was his his um, I think it was his sister was married to the the leader of the Saxons, a man called Widukind. And several times Widukind crossed the border and sought um, refuge from these uh, campaigns of, uh, of both battles. And of course, the, the standout event was was in the middle of the 780s. That was this massacre of 4,500 unarmed Saxon prisoners who were first of all forcibly baptized and then beheaded uh, there was there was what we would now call ethnic cleansing vast groups of Saxons were moved away from uh, from uh, problematic areas and as I say Widjikin crossed the border two or three times sought refuge among the Danes and you can imagine the kind of uh, one has usually empathy here but it's not hard to do imagine the sort of effect that this would have on uh, the Danes and and through them, of course, the the, the people uh, the, the people over whom they exercise a kind of a tributary uh, relationship in Norway and Sweden, so that you could imagine that the great tension and the kind of cultural fear. This was a sort of cultural imperialism, and they were afraid of it. As as many many a small culture, it's just quite a modern phenomenon you see yeah. it in the modern world. So that I think that they they realised they realised that. Uh, what, well, what should they do about it? You know, this. Uh, how should we deal with this? We're not. Uh, we can't really face them militarily. We can't really face them face to face on the battlefield. What should we do about it? 
So that, that really takes us into the crux of, 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 of your thesis, I suppose, or at least part of, part of your thesis, is, is the fact that this, this fear of what Charlemagne and his Franks might do to, to the Vikings, having seen what they did to the Saxons, led them to, to start raiding. That's, that's because they were, they were led by fear. Well, I think I, I think that is uh, it's certainly a very very interesting and, and, and fruitful way to look at, at, because I think one of the things you have to do is, is ask yourself why did the the Viking Age begin when it did? Um, a lot of the reasons that are that are usually given for the for the onset of the Viking Age will point to uh, things like uh, overpopulation. Or they will point to things like the, the practice of primogeniture, where only the eldest son could inherit, so that there were a lot of younger brothers with no land and nothing much to do. Uh, um, but that's not a situation that arises overnight. You have to really try to explain why it um, erupted when it did. And I think when you look at that, the way that Charlemagne dealt with the Saxons, which was a, and completely dismantling their culture, even by law, once he'd uh, subdued them, death penalties for all sorts of things like refusing to to be baptized and so on. <clears throat> then um, I think that you, I think that there's a very good case for saying that this was a kind of a acts of asymmetrical warfare in, in in modern terminology, almost even terrorism, in in that you you attack people. Um, because they're Christian rather than, uh, of course, you you rob them as well. But what makes it okay to rob them with such brutality is that they are such hateful people uh, or they represented something hateful. Hmm. So that, you know, in many ways, that those I think it's, uh, it is an anachronism, but you could almost think of some of those early raids as being terrorism, almost in a modern sense, that they... Uh, they kill people for what they represent as much as for the, the what they can rob from them. And, and they do it with what I would think is almost an overkill. They, it's too brutal. If, if all you're going to do is rob these people, it's too brutal. And, and uh, why burn the churches down? Why not leave them standing? Because the, the, their treasures would be replenished that much more quickly and they would be available to rob that much more quickly. If they were simply professional barbarians and robbers, then I don't think they would have, have shown such hostility towards the artifacts of Christianity, the, the manifestation of Christianity as an institution. So that puts a, a slightly different spin on the way we see the the people behind these raids, isn't it? I mean, we, we've kind of the, the the reputation has has gone up and down a bit in, in in historiography, hasn't it? We started off maybe with them as just this view of these basically savages coming in, uh, even people with no no understanding or complexion of, of of Christian culture who just wanted to rob, rape, pillage, mm. and then kind of we moved away from that, didn't we? we? Took a slightly more liberal view on them, thinking they were they were really just interested in the cultures and 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 they were mm. they were voyagers. But now we're getting. A, uh, an entirely new nuance to it now, from 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 your perspective. Yeah, but I think I think uh, <clears throat> I think history is very often the product of of, of the time in which the historian is living, uh, and um, I think perhaps people in recent years had forgotten how much passion ethnic tensions can arouse. But then uh, there are many examples. But but for example, the former Yugoslavia in the nineties is a very obvious example. Even Northern Ireland, you suddenly realise how what extraordinary violence and passion uh, intercultural tensions and, and rivalries can um, can excite uh, so I'm not suggesting that this is the only reason I'm not suggesting that, that these other reasons necessarily must disappear but I do think that this this idea of cultural tension has not been introduced to an English language public at all and I think it's we are, given the world we're living in at the moment I think we have a much greater 
more empathic understanding of 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 of, of what it feels like for a, a small culture to be attacked by, by a larger culture or to or to feel the pressures of cultural imperialism and, okay and just just uh, coming to an end how how bloodthirsty were the Vikings exactly? I mean, you talked about that, the, the 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 damage their raids committed, and, and Lindisfarne is is the prime example. How how bad were their raids on the people who they raided? Well, in in the in this first uh, wave, which I guess it really goes from let's say seven about seven ninety two to maybe maybe the middle of the ninth century, which is when a slight change comes uh, comes over the phenomenon. Uh, um, I think that they were. Uh, Characterized by, as I say, uh, quite literally overkill. I mean, there's that incident in 806 when Iona, that remote monastery, which is one of the most holy places of, of, of northern Christianity, attacked for about the third time in 806. And 68 people, precisely the, the analysts give the number 68 people. It's a terrible, it's a small number of people, but it's also an extremely large number of people, if you think about it. And these were unarmed monks. They weren't expecting. Why kill them? Why not just rob them? Hmm. Uh, I think that everything points to a sort of hatred, which is of over and beyond what you would normally expect from robbers who simply wanted money. Yeah. Um, and and and, but as I say, once once in the middle of the ninth century, I do think there is a, a, slight, a qualitative change that comes over it when they realise how wealthy, particularly England is, um, and they realise also that it's doesn't have a centralized monarchy it's it's rather its defenses are split that the, the the dream of conquest begins to enter their head as a as a as a people at about that time so that uh, and what persists of course is the fact that they are on opposite sides of the cultural divide they remain pagans the analysts always refer to them uh, and and uh, alfred's biographer asser for example and the uh, einhardt charlemagne's biographer these for, for them it is always a battle between pagans and Christians, they're very rarely referred to by their tribal identities. It's mm. always the religion, it's always the culture that they represent. And in the middle of the, 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 um, the ninth century, as I say, the dream of conquest arises when they realise there's fabulous wealth to be gained and possibly even uh, countries and crowns. One last question. Give us, give us the, the Scandinavian perspective on this. How, how impassioned a subject is this, the, the, the Vikings and who they were in their homelands? It's um well the, it's their history so they have a slightly different perspective on it I mean they uh, they identify rightly or wrongly this is rather silly after 1,200 years to, yeah. to talk about them and us but it's 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 instinctive really they regard the, the Viking as being their uh, their forefathers and of course they're rather fond of the idea of uh, of them being great craftsmen and um, they're proud of them. Uh, but I think this idea that I'm promoting here, uh, I won't pretend it's its original idea, but it's been voiced a couple of times by some very prominent Norwegian archaeologists, uh, Bjorn Mead in particular. And uh, I think this, this uh, given the times we live in and what's happening in, on the world stage, I think people are more and more uh, realising that there must be a place for this explanation for the outbreak of Viking violence in, in, in the 790s. Um, they're proud of their, their. I can speak most about the Norwegians, of course. I think they're proud of them. They, re, they regard them really as rather tearaways, you know. Disapprove of them, but with the sort of a wink, you know, that this was, um, you know, not bad ancestor to have, really. This episode is brought to you by Heineken Silver. When you discover something you love, like a new podcast or beer, you have to tell everyone about it. So when you try new Heineken Silver, a world-class light beer with only 2.9 carbs and 95 calories, you'll want to tell the world how great it is. 
New Heineken Silver, the world-class light beer with all the taste, no bitter endings. Available at your local Heineken retailer or for delivery at heineken.com slash silver. Must be 21 plus to purchase. Enjoy Heineken responsibly. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. This episode is brought to you by Fiat. A remix just hits different. The 2024 Fiat 500e is no exception. Cruise city streets in style with an all-electric ride that's fully equipped with an available premium JBL audio system. Explore the all-new 2024 Fiat 500e at fiat.com. Fiat is a registered trademark of FCA Group Marketing SPA. Used under license by FCA US LLC. That was Robert Ferguson. His feature is in the December issue of the magazine. He is author of The Hammer and the Cross, A New History of the Vikings, which is published now by Alan Lane. And now, on to our next interview. Samuel Johnson was widely regarded as the leading literary figure of his time, and he was born 300 years ago this year. The work for which he is perhaps most famous is his Dictionary of the English Language, published in 1755. However, he was also a poet, biographer, essayist, editor and a reviewer. Earlier, I spoke to biographer Peter Martin, who's written a feature on Johnson in our December issue. Peter, could you start by telling us a little more about the range of Johnson's literary endeavour? His range was extraordinary. He was a literary colossus, really. He wrote essays, poetry, biography, works on travel, political pamphlets... For, for some of for several of which he got into real trouble, particularly with the American audience, because he he wrote uh, against the American um, war war of uh, revolution. He wrote sermons, fables. He was also a journalist, editor of Shakespeare. He wrote many letters, kept diaries, and all of this in spite of complaining all his life that he was lazy, um, that he was, and, and, he, and feeling great guilt that he was wasting his time and not deserving of the talents that God uh, had given him. Uh, but he had great powers of concentration when he did work. So he achieved an, an incredible amount. And, and the Yale edition of, of his complete works runs to many volumes. If someone wanted to find out a little more, what would you suggest they read of Johnson's own work? What, where would be a good place to start? The best place to start with reading, uh, getting to know Johnson through his writings, is his essays. Uh, his essays are very powerful. They seem to be as vital and as useful and as engaging today as, as, as when he wrote them in the 1740s. Now, you touched a moment ago upon his sort of exacting standards and his, his thought that he was perhaps a bit lazy. Uh, what else do we know about the man himself? Well, we, we know about his schools, his boyhood, um, friends and illnesses. He says in one of his diaries that he was born almost dead. His, ox- his one year at Oxford, which ended unhappily because he ran out of money. We know a lot about his family, his father, his brother. His brother committed suicide. His uh, marriage to Elizabeth Porter, whom he called Tetty, and who was 20 years older than he. We know a lot about his general health. Johnson had, had a habit of writing 
generously about his his health and his physical problems. His travels, especially with Boswell in the Hebrides in 1773, we would know a good deal um, good deal more if he if he had not actually burned most of his papers and many of his books two or three weeks before he died in 1784. And why do you think he did that? He felt this huge uh, accumulating guilt all his life for all kinds of things. Much of it was religiously shaped. Uh, a lot of it had to do with this, this sense that he you know, was wasting time, that he was indolent and lazy. Uh, he, had, he had certain over, overplayed and overstated uh, problems uh, or, or guilt over sex, sexual relations. So I, I think he just wanted to wipe the, the, slate, uh, the slate clean. He even burned his mother's papers. The, the, the one person whose letters he saved were Mrs. Thrales, Hester Thrale, who became a very good friend of his in, um, after, you know, in the early 1760s and remained so until shortly before he died, and uh, with whom he had a complicated uh, relationship, as he did with, um, with Boswell, really. Yes, now let's let's go on to Boswell, because you mentioned him earlier. Um, his Life of Johnson, of course, is one of the great biographies of English literature. What does it tell us about Johnson? As a matter of fact, I mean, you know, Johnson is perhaps the second most frequently quoted English author after Shakespeare. And most of what we quote of Johnson's that is not in his writings, conversation in, in uh, you know, among his friends in, in the famous literary club that he founded with Sir Joshua Reynolds, uh, most of that comes straight out of Boswell. Um, but Boswell had facts that he wanted to suppress, and he did, for example, almost completely suppress the relationship Johnson had with Mrs. Thrale, who was probably his greatest confidant. Uh, she knew things about his emotional life that nobody, nobody else did. Boswell doesn't tell us much, for example, about Johnson's profound emotional problems. He doesn't tell us about some of his great fears. He does touch on Johnson's melancholia. He keeps talking about that. Johnson suffered severely from melancholia, as well as from something that we now call Tourette's syndrome. His melancholia pervaded his life from from the very beginning. I tried to exorcise that too through the long walks that he took, uh, frequently between Birmingham and Litchfield, which is about twenty miles. And uh, he, he emerged finally through through a translation he did called "The Voyage to Abyssinia." But then, in the early 1760s, he suffered another deep mental crisis, a sense of oppression and grayness and uh, inertia from which he was rescued, I think, at that point uh, by Mrs. Thrale and, and uh, Mr. Thrale, who took him off to their home in Streatham, Streatham Park, and there nursed him pretty much back to health. And the last 20 years or so of his life, he, he could almost say that he lived there much of the time. They, he had his own room and, and that sort of thing. He had sexual, sexual guilt, too, um, undocumentable. And this pervasive sense of um, a fear of death, Boswell ignored. Uh, it was a really big problem Johnson had. He, didn't, he genuinely fe feared he would not go uh, to heaven, that he would go to hell. It's very sad, isn't it, that someone that we think of as such a sort of brilliant, successful um, literary figure should have felt so dissatisfied, really, 
think I think he was dissatisfied in these ways that that, that I've just mentioned. Yes. But he had great satisfaction and fulfillment in his friends. He had a, a, a deep fund of humor. Boswell reco- records his sense of humor better than anyone else. He had a robust sense of life, and he had a great sense of satisfaction in his literary success later. His marriage was a failure, and Boswell ignores that. His movements were wild. I mean, he suffered from Tourette syndrome. He had ticks and gesticulations, made odd noises, and society was a bit awkward with him, uh, to be with him and that sort of thing. But, you know, I, I, I don't want to underplay that, but... Uh, you ask about Boswell, what Boswell suppressed, and this is this is the perhaps the major thing that he did suppress, because uh, because Johnson was Boswell's hero, and although it wasn't a whitewash, indeed Boswell's great contribution to biography was that he wrote the first significant biography, comprehensive biography. Uh, which was not hagiography or uh, a whitewash. This inner life of Johnson's, he ignored. Now, finally, 300 years after his birth, how do you think we should remember him today and what can we learn from him? We should remember him, I think, as the great essayist. And it isn't just a matter of memory. We have these essays. Um, they, They number about 400 in all. I've got a lot of them in my new edition, because out of this misery, this agony, if you like, that Johnson, this understanding of human nature, that the appreciation of, of human foibles, of, of vanity and pride, of fear, greed, all of these human qualities, Johnson's understanding of these fed into his essays, and he doesn't write them in a preachy way. We call them Johnson's moral essays, but they're, they're not preachy. He, he assures the reader he, that we are all on the same boat and that we can talk about these things. And in the process of talking about them in this magnificent style of his, this rhythmical, beautifully phrased style, he's able to, to unfold a great deal about us all. You, you often feel uncomfortable when you read them because you recognize their truth about yourself but at the end of them without any moralizing in the uh, in a didactic sense he gives us johnson gives us at the end uh, a sense of a uh, more complete sense of um, of who we are and it's very tragic i mean it really is tragic that this great author he's a, a cultural icon among english speaking peoples native english speaking peoples and especially in this country is not now read much in schools. Uh, he's almost totally absent in A-level reading, for example, as he once uh, was not. And uh, so you know, if people grow up, you know, and they find themselves at universities and then leave universities without even having heard of Johnson, much less read him. And that is, that is a, great, a very great shame. Peter Martin's book Samuel Johnson, A Biography, is published by Phoenix, while Samuel Johnson's Selected Writings is published by Belknap Press. BBC History magazine is published each month. You can find it in all good news agents in the UK for just £3.80. Or you can save money and make sure that you never miss an issue by taking advantage of one of our great sub-deals, whether you're in the UK or live overseas. Details are on the website, and that is at www.bbchistorymagazine.com. 
So, we're done for another month, and in fact, another year. We're going to uh, go back to being monthly in 2010, so there'll just be one podcast a month, unless there's an outcry from our merry band of listeners demanding that we carry on with two podcasts. In the meantime, of course, let me wish you, if you celebrate such things, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Our first podcast of 2010 will take a quick spin through a history of the world in 100 objects, stare into the toilet bowl of history of Thomas Crapper, and find out what was in the medicine cabinet of 18th century households. 